In today's programme, we learn about the many, many miles of pipes that bring Cambridge City its water. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. Last year, we had the lowest rainfall since the 1960s. Nicholas spoke to Stephen Kay, the MD of Cambridge Water Company, and who we really must thank for helping to fund today's show. Yes, that's right. Although Cambridge does have a very good record for efficiency and for low leakage rates, so even in these droughts, we don't actually have a hosepipe ban. We are encouraged to use water sparingly. Cambridge gets its water from underground. The water is held in a layer of porous rock called an aquifer. In our case, the rock is chalk, which has very small pores, which hold the water like a sponge. We extract the water through boreholes drilled down into the chalk. The water is sucked out of the chalk by pumps. The boreholes aren't very deep. The deepest is 120 metres below Rimey Hill, and the shallowest is just 25 metres under Fleam Dyke. I asked Stephen Kay how long it takes for rainwater to filter down from the surface into the aquifer. Well, actually, only a season. For the most part, the soil layer is immediately over the chalk rock. Once the, the moisture of the soil becomes 100%, so all the rain after that percolates down into the chalk rock. And by the end of the, the winter, what has percolated into chalk rock finds its way into the boreholes and through the fissures into the aquifer. So even one drought year will actually make a difference to your water levels. Exactly. That's why chalk-fed boreholes are somewhat more susceptible to drought than green sand or sandstone. So how do you monitor the water reserves? We have over 30 borehole sites where we uh, pump water to supply our customers. We use six of those sites as what we call indicator sites. And um, at least once a month, if not more frequently, we stop pumping from them for 24 hours and measure the depth to which the water rises. And that gives us a an indicator of how much water is available to us to pump. The, the chalk is a bit like a sponge, and the aquifer is a bit like a sponge in a bucket with holes <laughs> the t- near the top. So if you pour water into the bucket, it fills up the sponge. And when the sponge is full, the water runs out of the holes. And that equates to the springs that feed the rivers. So if the water level drops, your springs dry up. So if you turn the water off coming in at the top, so it doesn't rain, gradually the water runs out of the holes and leaves a saturated sponge, which is the chalk rock. So if you put a, a straw into the sponge and suck, you will get water out for a very much longer time than the Mm. water stops coming out of the holes. But this means that once the aquifer is full, it's full. It's never going to store any more because it's all just going to come out. Yes, yes. And that's when you get floods, when the springs are going full bore and water is running off the surface of the ground. So how do you decide how much it's okay? Presumably someone sets some levels that say you you can drop it down to there. Yes, we have some of these boreholes we've been pumping for a hundred years and so we've pumped them through drought periods and through flood periods which gives us a lot of information on their yield and have monitoring boreholes which tell us 
the, the level of water elsewhere in the catchment. And that gives us an idea using computer models of the catchment of uh, how long we can pump and how much. Cambridge is growing. We're getting more and more houses. How many more houses can we actually accommodate before we start getting low on water? Well, if we go back 20 years to 1991-92, that was the last time we had a prolonged period without rain. Since then, 20% more houses have been connected. We are using 5% less water. So how are the levels of, of water now compared to 1990s? About the same level. Okay. And we've actually added additional resources out of Thetford. So we've got, apart from the fact that we've got, we're using 5% less, we have actually got yeah. 10% more okay. because we added additional resources mm. at Thetford. So how come we've got 20% more houses and 5% less usage? Well, we've metered a lot of people, well over 70%. And that makes people use less? And that makes people use less. One, because they save money. But secondly, because they have a an actual figure for the amount of water they use. So when we give customers water efficiency messages, which say how much a bath uses and how much a shower uses, etc., then they can equate that to what goes through the meter. Uh, in addition to that, we've reduced leakage levels by 30%, and new houses are using less water. And there's no doubt about that, because our metered customers on general, in general use about 20 litres per person per day less than unmetered customers. And new houses use approximately 10 litres less than the average meter customer. What have they got that we haven't got? Well, the first thing is toilet systems are now much smaller than they used to be. Many Victorian houses and Edwardian houses in Cambridge will still have a 9-litre or 2-gallon flush. You can't now buy a system that flushes more than 4.5. So it's 4.5 for a large flush, 3 litres for a small flush. There are low-water-use taps so with spray fittings so that you don't have a fully uh, a full-bore tap, uh, aerated shower heads, and all these things add up to considerable savings. In addition, although we wish white goods would have a proper water efficiency rating as they do energy rating, at least now white goods say for a washing machine how many litres use per cycle. So you would advise people when they buy a washing machine to look at the actual water usage, just as they look at the actual um, energy usage? Absolutely, and they will be combined because you're basically heating water. In a, in a washing machine, the less water you have to heat, the less energy you're going to use. Okay. Can we pause your chat just there so that we can do some quick maths? When I run my washing machine, Nicola, how does the water cost compare with the electricity cost? I looked at this and I must say I was surprised. According to my last water bill, we're paying £2.15 per cubic metre of water. That includes the sewerage charge as well, which is a lot more than the cost of the fresh water supply. But that's nothing to do with Cambridge Water Company, that's Anglian Water. Maybe we should talk to them another day. Anyway, £2.15 per 1,000 litres. A medium-sized washing machine, say 5 kilograms capacity, will take 30 to 60 litres of water for a full cotton wash cycle. That comes to between 6p and 13p. 
the electricity consumption will be around one unit, presumably a bit less if you're using less water, but call it one. I'm paying 12.5p a unit now, so that's 12.5p for the electricity. The cost of the water is a little less than the cost of the electricity. And as Stephen Kay said, the less water the washing machine uses, the less it has to heat up. Let's continue the talk. Can we go back to the leaks thing? You said that you've reduced your leaks by a third. So that presumably means there's still quite a lot of leaks. What is the state of, what, what kind of materials have you got in, in the mains underneath the city? So I haven't looked at the figures very closely for a couple of years, but we have a, approximately 2,400 kilometres of water mains and about another 150 kilometres of small diameter pipes connecting those water mains to people's houses. Quite a lot of it, about a quarter, is cast iron. That's, that's cast water iron. mains laid up until about the First World War, just beyond. Is that good or bad? It's good in that they're very robust, they're very thick, uh, and the ground conditions in Cambridge and the surrounding areas is, are benign for, for iron pipes. Um, it's bad because the joints are all a 100 and odd years old. And the traffic loading is very heavy, so most of the pipes are under roads. And the old-style joints, which are made of lead, tend to shake free. So there's lots and lots probably of weeping joints around the city. These are leaks you would never find unless you dug up the pipe and looked at it. These, these leaks do not uh, make a... Most leaks make a noise. There is a characteristic a noise to a leak... So if you... Uh, you mean a sort of whooshing sound? Yes. So, so is that how you find the leaks? That's how we find them. We listen, either using your ear through a, uh, a piece of metal held against a valve, or, much, much cleverer now, we use microphones. So you put a microphone on top of the valve, and uh, you put a microphone on the next valve, and then you go away and leave it running for the night, and then... They, the microphones talk to each other about have they, have they heard a noise and if they've heard a noise how loud it was in one compared with the other and therefore how far it is between the two of them mm. which is called a leak noise correlator. And that, is that in the cast iron pipes usually? No, no we find leaks in, in water mains laid 10 years ago Really? Why are we having leaks in water mains that are only laid 10 years ago? If you take a plastic pipe However well you lay it, flints, especially if you lay it in chalk rock and you surround the plastic pipe in sand, sometimes a flint will migrate to, through the sand and sit underneath the plastic pipe and the weight of the water and the weight of the soil above, all of a sudden you get a pinhole. Yeah. And, and plastic pipes can be quite uh, difficult to find the leaks because the noise doesn't vibrate so much in a plastic pipe as a metal pipe. So what's your favourite kind of pipe? Um, I don't have one. I've been laying pipes of one sort or another for 42 years. And I've had experience of, of all the pipes in our area. And they all have pluses and minuses. So plastic pipes are great because at smaller diameters you can lay a very, very long continuous length. So you have a reel of pipe. And lots of customers and your listeners will have seen big drums of pipe both gas, yellow, water, blue, uh, on the back of big trailers being laid in the ground. So they don't have joints. Every joint is a potential weakness. So every time you put a joint in, 
it has the opportunity for in a plastic pipe for heating and cooling to stretch the pipe and then contract it and pull it away from the joint. Okay. In metal pipes, you have the problems that you have hot spots of clay which rot the pipe. Um, with asbestos cement pipes, which are great because the pipe itself gets tougher and tougher as, as age with age, but the joints in between the walls were of natural rubber and there are lots of bacteria in the ground that love to eat natural rubber. So there's lots of replacements, and it's it's a little bit like the fourth bridge. Thank you very much. Okay, pleasure. That was Stephen Kay from the Cambridge Water Company. Thanks again to Cambridge Water Company for sponsoring this show. I asked Stephen if he had a message for our listeners, and he pointed out that as well as using water in our home, we use a lot of water in our gardens, but some gardens are a lot thirstier than others. Here in East Anglia, the climate is drier than in other parts of the UK. The average rainfall for Cambridge is 550 millimetres, which is less than half the average for the UK as a whole. So we can't expect to grow the same sort of plants. On the Cambridge Water website, they have advice about which plants like our dry conditions and suggestions about vegetables to grow. Also, if you go to the Cambridge University Botanical Gardens, do take a look at the dry garden there, also sponsored by Cambridge Water Company. The dry garden doesn't get watered at all. It's got alpines and Mediterranean grasses, semi-succulents that store water in their leaves, all sorts of stuff, and it's very pretty. The website is www.cambridge-water.co.uk. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Nicola Terry. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>